Welcome back to the Imagination Redeemed podcast. I'm Brian Brown, and I'm here with Heidi White, and we want to talk about the enchanted kingdom. There is no heaven and earth as we have commonly come to understand them. Harps and clouds and ethereal spiritual things on the one hand and unimportant physical matter on the other. Earth is charged with the grandeur of God and we can learn to see his character and his workmanship crackling through every fiber of the world that we live in. But to do this, we have to move beyond some categories that we're used to using and delve deeper into phrases like the heavens declare the glory of God than your typical Instagram post hmm. does. Heidi, thanks for joining me for this one on to talk about a topic that neither of us cares about in the slightest. I know, this is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just jump into... Um, a quick recap. So some things that um, if you haven't uh, encountered them already that you should, on this podcast and on our website, there is a piece by Paul Buckley and there is a piece by Hans Borsma, each of which exists to tee up this conversation. So if you really want to get a good introduction, start by um, reading or listening to those. We want to pick up kind of where those leave off and we can talk a little bit more about some of the big ideas in those conversations, in those uh, essays, and then we want to build on them. So uh, for starters, it seems like a good place to start is what is heaven and what is earth? Hmm. Easy, because the categories we're used to are material and spiritual, I think, typically. Maybe start there. Do you want to jump in with uh, what what you've typically seen in terms of how people think about these things or, sure. or, uh, or, and, and, and how we can do better? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I think most of us modern Christians in the West, uh, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think this is a pretty fair generalization, have been kind of raised with this idea that we live in this material world that was created by God in some distant past for a couple of days when Adam and Eve didn't sin yet, it was good. And then after Eve ate the apple, then the world kind of fell into this disarray and it doesn't matter anymore and it's all going to burn and it's made of this material stuff that has no eternal value because it can fade away. One, it's been corrupted by sin and two, it decays and dies and all that, right? And, um, on the other hand, great news, most of us have been taught, there's this mystical, mysterious other world that is very abstract, probably is full of golden light and maybe has streets of gold, uh, but... Less it, real than this one somehow. Yeah, um, yeah and we're going to kind of like float there somehow <laughs> in endless bliss, but we have no idea what that's going to be like. Right. And the people who have died and gone there are beyond this, I don't know, almost like a paywall, right? Like you haven't cashed <laughs> in your chips yet as, and died, um, but you're going to someday go to this blissful place that exists where, question mark, right? But it's better. Like that's what we need to know. It's way better there than it is here. And there's this unconquerable wall or divide between this world and that. Yeah. And there's before, before you get into the what's wrong with that and where's what's better, a couple points from the essays that were interesting to me on this. One is that Hans pointed out that you, you typically have one of two options when you're thinking about that stuff. You're either 
like I mentioned, heaven is less real. Like it's all spiritual and like everything that you like on this earth is going away. But don't worry, it will be better.、Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, trying to define heaven by this earth. Right, you like beer on this earth. The beer in heaven will be even better. You like sunsets on this earth. The sunsets in heaven will、Your、be even better. Your smoking hot wife will be even hotter in heaven. <laughs> and,、uh, and and the point that he made is that no, the the defining reality is heaven. The defining reality is God, God's habitation, and the earth has a relationship to that habitation that is that is derivative but important. Because、uh, and and you know, C.S. Lewis is so good at kind of making you think this way that there's there is a larger reality. This thing we call reality is bigger than we realize, but the material world isn't is not irrelevant to it.、Hmm. But even when you hear a pastor say that, you don't usually know what to do with it. Right, right, yeah. To expand on that a little bit, I've said before in the podcast I teach a medieval humanities class for tenth and eleventh graders. And、uh, we read a poem every class. We begin class with a psalm and a poem. And、uh, right now, having worked through a book of poetry, I'm assigning students to bring in poems to share and you know, spend ten minutes meditating on as a class. So yesterday, one of my students brought in a poem by Wendell Berry, and the poem it was a beautiful poem about stewarding creation. And this student asked the class, "Good question. What do you think about stewarding creation?" Which just seems to be what he's advocating. And these kids, there's 13 really great, strong Christian kids. Several of them immediately raised their hands. I don't really like it. I don't really like it. I don't like that vision. I don't like the poem because the only thing that matters is preaching Christ and saving souls. Right. So then we get into a really rich discussion then about, hmm, I wonder why you think that's opposite, right? Why is it that stewarding creation is somehow in opposition to the salvation of souls, right? But I, I think it's it's an honest problem. These are in good faith. They're just trying to advocate what they have been taught, which is the role of a Christian, the vocation of a Christian, is the Great Commission, right? To go out and preach the gospel. To all nations and to all people, and in their minds, the gospel is Christ died on the cross and resurrected. Which, to your point that you brought up in the last podcast, misses two important parts of the unfolding story of creation, which is creation, then fall, then the redemption of Christ, and then the restoration of all things. Right, so. The unfolding Christian story begins with the created physical world. It begins with Eden, which is a place that was created good to nourish the appetites of our flesh, and then it and then the creation the created story ends with restoration, which the Bible tells us will be a restoration of Eden. It will be a restoration of paradise that will nourish our redeemed bodies. And so, to steward creation is part of the Great Commission, and and that is a missing piece, I think,、uh, within the Christian story. And I even saw that played out yesterday in my classroom. So we're not talking about this being some esoteric, like, you know, we're trying to address a problem that isn't really there, right? This right. really is a missing piece,、uh, even within 
the young people of our generation. And I think even when we have the notion of, of stewardship, it seems arbitrary. In fact, I think a lot of the commandments in Scripture seem a little bit arbitrary. Like, I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's just Jesus in the Bible and me. That's all I need. But I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday for some reason. Mm -hmm. The next world is all that matters. But I can't deny that Scripture says I'm supposed to steward creation for some reason. Mm -hmm. And when you start to understand Scripture as a coherent story in which the Old Testament and New Testament gods are not two different gods, and where the progressive unfolding of the story is the is the the fulfillment, the completion, the in some cases circling back to themes and ideas that were put into the creation from the beginning. I mean, last month in in April, we spent time talking about resurrection and talking about how resurrection itself is in the created order. Because God is not limited by time, uh, you can't say that when we screwed up the world, God wasn't ready for that. And so he had to create a plan B, which was the incarnation. Oops, got to think of another idea now. They screwed it up. No, resurrection was in the nature of creation from the beginning. And there's a reason that, and I'd love actually for you to get into this, but there's a reason that you have, um, we respond to certain numbers differently. Like why three? Why, why is it that rhetorically when you have a rhetorical device and you want to make a point saying this, this, and this, mm -hmm. three things, why is it ooh, Trinitarian. Trinitarian? Why? Why? Right. And, um, so, you know, resurrection is, is an easy one um, when, and, and my wife Christina talks about this all the time because she's uh, a gardener and I'm a, an apprentice gardener. In order for something to grow, in order for a plant to grow, a seed has to die. Yes. And there's this thing called a seed and it literally dies. And from up now, I mean, this is the moment when, when Aslan's been slaughtered on the stone table and all the earth is still. There's nothing, apparently alive in this moment and then a few days later or a few weeks later now there's something green coming up that image was in the creation that we're supposed to have some kind of relationship with from the beginning mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that everything has been made is the glory of God, which means, well, the reason everything has been made is the glory of God, which means that we have the opportunity to know God through his creation, not just know about God, but know God. Right. So it seems to me that if the created order has, I mean, why does, why do the Psalms talk about created order so much? Psalmists are always talking about trees and skies and whatnot over and over and over and over. God, in writing his book, seems to think that when he makes a point, we've already seen something that will make that point resonate with us, mm -hmm. which requires us to pay attention right. to something. Right. Yes. I think that's really beautifully said, Brian. And so I think... So much of our perception of the world as the material world as a place that's going to burn. I've heard that so many times mm -hmm. in my life. It's all going to burn, which comes from a true desire to understand scripture when it says that the world will be 
made new. And it talks about the world being shaken um, so that all that is unshakable will remain is the next part, which that's often ignored, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or that the earth will, you know, be swallowed in fire and water. Uh, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I think that there's a sincere understanding. I think it's a misunderstanding, but it's sincere within the general Christian mind that this material world's a bad place. And I think there's a couple of legitimate reasons for that misunderstanding that are not on the not the faults of the people misunderstanding. Okay. One that is that we're all moderns. So we live in a world that treats material things as resources, not as things themselves, right? So we look at a tree and we think that tree could become a bookshelf or a building, right? We see the tree as a seed, so to speak. The Mm. tree has to die to serve my appetites, Mm. to be made into something useful, right? Right. However, if we go back to classical thinking, we have somebody like Aristotle who says the telos of of an acorn is an oak tree. The purpose of an acorn is to become a tree. A tree is a thing itself. A tree is a sacramental being. And a bookshelf or a building is either a desecration of that thing, or like it shouldn't have been, or it is uh, a stewardship of that thing, right? It's not wrong to build a bookshelf. It's not wrong to build a building. But it is, it is the death of the tree, and that's something that matters. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Life of St. Solon, and in it he goes on a walk with a fellow monk. He's a monk on Mount Athos. And goes, he goes for a walk with a fellow monk, and the fellow monk picks a leaf. And St. Solon said to him, It's not a sin that you plucked that leaf. It's just rather a pity for the little leaf. <laughs> and... Uh, In saying that, I think he's saying something very profound, which is there are things that we're allowed to do with the created world that are not necessarily sins, but we ought to pay attention to it. Mm. We ought to think about it. We ought to weigh it as something that matters because that leaf is a thing itself. I think that's hard for our modern minds to wrap our heads around. Right. And I think that there's a lot within um, Protestant Christianity that is that is in fact modern ideas, uh, not Protestant ideas, but they're mistaken for Protestant ideas, where it doesn't know what to do with what you just said. Mm-hmm. Because I think many of us have no mental category between indifference and idolatry. Right. And on the one hand, that something doesn't matter at all. Like think about, um, I mean, I could go really controversial and say, communion, mm-hmm. the Eucharist, right. like either this is just to help me remember something. The right. bread and the wine are nothing, right. mean nothing, indifference, mm-hmm. in other words. But again, back to what I said earlier, I do them because for some reason, Jesus, Jesus said, said I have so. to do this over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's idolatry and I'm going to make up all kinds of fantastical lies that dishonor the Lord and worship the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. And those are my two options. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to, for some of us, I think, to have a space in between those two things, because when you start talking about a, the, the, the tree being a sacramental being like, oh, okay, now I, I hear tree hugger. Right. I, I, I hear some, I, I hear idolatry mm-hmm. and I fear rightly right. idolatry. What does it look like right. to carve out, 
that middle space, what is that middle space between indifference and idolatry, especially when it comes to the created order? Right. That's such a good question. And I really like what you said at the beginning that the modern mind doesn't necessarily have a category for it, which again is one of one of the things we're wrestling through within the Anselm Society on how to open up a space for understanding the middle way, the golden mean, right? The mean is, uh, as Aristotle said, the mean is the virtue between two extremes, right? If we have the indifference on one end and the idolatry on the other, uh, we don't have to pick an extreme. The virtue is going to be the mean between the two. So what is that? And we would say it's the enchanted kingdom, right? And, and what we mean by that is that the tree is not to be worshipped, but the tree is a signpost, right? It is an evidence of the God who is to be worshipped. And if he made it, then it reflects him in some way. And because of that, it matters. Mm-hmm. Because God made it on purpose to be a part of the created order, then there's something within it that teaches us about God. And part of the thing within it is that it's useful, right? It can be made into a bookshelf or a building. And part of the reason is also because it's beautiful, because it's rooted deeply, because it, it, a tree provides this experience of understanding growth and transformation. Something that, um, that I've been thinking about lately is, uh, the renewal of the seasons that we see in a tree, for Mm -hmm. example, that God created the world one time, right, at the beginning, and that he keeps recreating it in the cycle of of the seasons. When I look at a tree, that tree was created at one time. It is still being created, and it will be created in the future. So in a sense, that tree is all of eternity, past, present, and future, existing in one plant and those things populate the whole earth they're everywhere they're on street corners by trash cans right (laughs) and and they just stand there as this monument to time and eternity and to the created order and anytime we have the eyes to see them we can behold them and gaze at them and learn something from them and, and, and commune with them in a spiritual way, not as not in an idolatrous way, but in an enchanted way. And I think that that's part of the Christian journey is to pray for eyes to see the created order as a reflection of God. And, um, and that usefulness is only a part of how they bring glory to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that, and you just did so much there with just a tree and you could do more. You could write mm-hmm. books just on the, the glory of a tree, the nature of the glory of a tree, what, and, and the ways in which a tree, um, illuminates for it. And I mean, in fairness, a tree is, is particularly significant. Uh, right. it's used repeatedly in scripture and it's used repeatedly by the ancients to help us, to help us understand God, um, that, you know, here is this central thing, this, this, this trunk with life to it that gives life to everything, mm-hmm. uh, in its branches. Um, and you know, the leaf that 
the proverbial leaf that were to rip itself off the tree and go, I don't need you, I can be just fine, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches. This is all over scripture. This is all over. And this is one object, one sacramental being. And imagine if you could see everything that way. Imagine if you could look at not just every individual thing. Here's a tree, here's a bush, here's a squirrel, here's an acorn, here's a rock. Um, but to see all of it as, as coherent mm-hmm. and, and consistent, which gets us to this question of, of, of why. Um, and one of the um, thinkers that I've appreciated on this topic is James Jordan, who's a, a contemporary Reformed theologian, and he's written an entire book called Through New Eyes, which is about um, biblical symbolism in the created order, or rather created order symbolism in scripture. And he just goes, there's an entire chapter on trees, and there's an entire chapter on rocks, and there's an entire chapter on clouds. And uh, and it's not sort of weird, creepy, decoding this kind of a thing. It's awakening you to a coherence of meaning hmm. that is in what God has made. And our role in it. I love the way that he describes it. Um, the role of, uh, man, which you have to mentally, um, expand to include and centrally Christ in the fullness of the story. But man, as a thing, as a being was made and put in this created order, the created order models the patterns of heaven. It it models the nature of God and it is good but it is not complete. Hmm. And man is put here to make the world. I, I, I wish I could remember the exact way that Jordan phrases it, but it's something like man was made to transfigure the world that it might be a, a habitation fit for God. Hmm. And now again, my modern mind and my Protestant mind go straight to, but I can't do that by my own strength, right? We can't do that. That's heresy, right? But if you understand the Imago Dei and you understand Christ as the fulfillment of the Imago Dei and you understand us as the body of Christ, then you understand it is only by the power of God himself in Christ that this is done. Hmm. And that for some weird reason, he keeps involving us in the process. At the very beginning, he gives us this thing to steward. And then he comes and says, join me. Not join me in this great cosmic hug, but literally join me. Be united with me. Be me. It doesn't say you are like the body of Christ. It says you are the body of Christ. And then the story ends in Revelation with this work being completed. And in this journey from, I made this thing, please do something with it to a, a heavenly city, our labors matter and our, and how we interact with that raw material. Again, I don't want to make it sound like resources, but it's, it's on some level, it's the raw material of our, of our created endeavors, right? If I'm going to make do a wood carving, I need a tree in that whole journey. We have a relationship with Christ in the work. And we can talk about that all year long, but we also have a relationship with the premise of all of it, the created order, the actual place that God has given us, which is soaked with meaning. It is not our Christian, our, our task as Christians to enchant the world in the good sense of the word enchantment. 
it's already it's enchanted. Already enchanted. And it's our task to understand it yes. and make it known to each right. other and to the universe. Mm -hmm. I think that that's exactly right. And and I think that's why these conversations matter uh, because so much of how we do interact with the natural world is based on how we think about the natural world. It's based on the story we tell ourselves about the natural world. When I see a tree and I see nothing but a bookshelf or a building, then I'm going to treat that tree very differently than the pagans did who saw it as you know, the, the home of a dryad uh, to be worshipped and, uh, and uh, for its own sake, uh, which, as you pointed out, is idolatry. Uh, and, um, and so we have to be telling ourselves a different story, a true story. And I think one of the, the things that's very important theologically to understand about creation is something that you just alluded to, uh, and, and you mentioned in the last podcast, is that we humans are little microcosms of the whole world, right? We, you, Brian, me, Heidi, I have been created. I have fallen. I have been redeemed by the work of Christ, and I am being restored. And in that way, I am a small version of the whole world, the earth that has been created good, has fallen, has been redeemed by the work of Christ, and then reconciled to him. Colossians talks about this, uh, that Christ reconciles all things to himself. Uh, and so the, the idea that Christ came just to save souls is wrong. And here's what I mean by that. He did come to save souls. He came to save me. He came to save you. He came to save the church. But he also came to save the planet. He came to save the cosmos. He came to save the natural order. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he, and this is 1 Corinthians 15, says this directly, that his death, burial, and resurrection came to save all all of the whole planet. That's why we get a new heaven and a new earth in the future. And we get redeemed bodies to live here in this place, in the new heavens and the new earth, when it has been transfigured and transformed. I'm so excited about that because we get a little glimpse of that in the resurrected Christ when he's walking through walls and eating good food and laughing and talking and taking walks. And he clearly looks, his body clearly looks different in some way because when he's talking to the people on the walk to Emmaus, they don't recognize him multiple times. He's not mm -hmm. recognized. And then their eyes are opened. So somehow these bodies that we will receive will be an imitation of that perfect flesh that Christ carried after his resurrection. And that's a physical form. Mm -hmm. Like that's, it, it isn't that Christ was a ghost. Remember he eats in front of them. He lets Thomas touch his hands and his side. And, and we're given that glimpse because to make us long, to awaken our longing for our own redeemed bodies that we're going to have on this redeemed planet in this redeemed world. I, I firmly believe, and I think scripture teaches when it talks about the feast, that's not talking about a metaphor. I think we're going to gather around a table and feast in our redeemed bodies with Christ. And so that's why food matters a lot. That's why at the Anselm Society, we eat well. Because it's in anticipation of this glorious physical feast that we're going to enjoy in the perfect kingdom. And so 
to your point that you brought up earlier, then it becomes part of our vocation as Christians to create in our families and in our communities and our churches and our bodies a prefiguring of our perfected body. That's why we eat well. That's why we exercise. That's why we kneel when we pray. You know, I, in, in our church, we cross ourselves all the time. Uh, we kneel when we are repentant. We stand in worship. Um, because our bodies are being redeemed just as our souls are. They interact together. And so that's part of why beauty and beauty matters in our lives and in our physical surroundings is because we are prefiguring a perfected kingdom. So that brings me to something that I want to talk about, which is um, the difference between metaphor and symbol. So in the because i can look at something like a tree and i can i can say oh that is like god or i can look at it and say that is a symbol of something about god and there's a difference and actually as someone who's orthodox i would actually punt it to you when you hear the word symbol what do you think of so let me give you an example of that in the spiritual realm when we talk about the eucharist the body and blood of Christ. Different Christian traditions understand the Eucharist very differently. Some see the Eucharist as the actual body and blood of Christ. Some see the Eucharist as carrying a mystical, spiritual reality, although not necessarily transforming into the blood and the body of Christ. And then some the Protestant traditions, some in the Protestant tradition, see it as merely symbolic, that this bread and wine is simply bread and wine, and it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ, but it remains bread and wine only. So is that kind of what you're getting at when we're talking about symbolism and metaphorical thinking? Yeah, so when, on on the most basic level, when when I say that something is a metaphor for something else. I'm usually, I'm that's you. A metaphor is usually a stretch, right? In fact, like I have friends where if I try to use a metaphor, it, it drives them nuts because they always see how how that the metaphor, the thing, is not exactly like the other thing. Yeah, all metaphors fall apart. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, because the thing A is not mm-hmm. thing B, and Jesus uses a lot of metaphors in his parables. Right? This thing is like that thing. This thing is like that thing. It reminds you of that thing, but they may or may not be that thing when someone's making a metaphor. A symbol in a you know, more old-fashioned sense of the word um, exists in part to represent the other thing, to show you something about the other thing. So to use your, your denominational example, there were very, very few of the early Protestant reformers that said that the the bread and wine in the Eucharist were only bread and wine. Don't look any further. They were symbols, right? Um, the even the most radical of them still said they were symbolic. They exist. God actually got us to this point. He gave us wheat. He gave us grapes. He let us figure out. He guided us to figure out how to make bread and wine, and. Even if you don't say that he's present in some mystical sense in those elements, those are the elements he gave us to point us to, this is my body, 
broken for you. He doesn't say, you know, this is like my body broken for you. It vaguely reminds you, you know, he's mm-hmm. for some reason, he says this thing, when you see this thing, I want you to think of me. Mm-hmm. And as you alluded to earlier, like when you feast, I want you to think about the real feast that this is a precursor of. So in that sense, when we're talking about the created order, and we're talking about something like wheat and grapes, we need to be willing to open our eyes to see those things, not as things that have no meaning, but which we could assign meaning Mm -hmm. to help us as a metaphor, to help us understand something spiritual. They exist in part to help us understand something spiritual. So they're symbolic in that sense. Right, right. Yep. And they are, (laughs) along with that, they're also the things themselves like a tree to go back to the tree example a tree is not doesn't (laughs) that tree that i'm looking at outside of your window that cottonwood tree that's blooming in april in colorado excuse me in may in colorado it's beautiful and that cottonwood tree does not exist just to be some kind of archetypal tree it doesn't exist just to put an idea of treeness into my head. It's there as a thing itself. And so I can look at it as just an idea of a tree and then kind of like close myself in my little study and read books about trees and uh, wish that the ants were real from Tolkien and um, kind of like meditate on the idea of treeness. And many of us do that, frankly, but that's mm-hmm. a mistake. What we need to do is go out and be with that tree. Like I should go out and walk by that tree and look at it and look at the bark, right? And touch the leaves and smell and sneeze a little because maybe we're a little bit allergic to cottonwood, right? Like this, that tree is there to give glory to God, not just as an archetypal tree, but because it's important in itself. The same way each person is important in themselves. And also the same way in which each tree and each person forms this planet, which is in itself completely unique in the whole cosmos as being living and thriving and alive and life-bearing and life-giving. In the same way, also, we participate in the fact that this is the only place in the whole cosmos where we can grow wheat and grapes so that we can participate in transforming them into bread and wine, that then a small portion of that can be transformed through prayers because I am Orthodox. So I do believe in the real presence, right? That through the prayers of the saints, the little S saints, and through the priestly vocation can be transformed into the body and blood of Christ. I remember, um, I was listening to an old episode of, um, Joy Clarkson's podcast yesterday. And, uh, and she told a story of, um, a moment. It was a kind of a dual story, something she'd seen happen on the beach in Los Angeles and then seen again happen on a street in Oxford. And in both cases, she was just walking along and she just suddenly noticed that everyone had stopped. It was like a scene from a sci-fi movie or something and everyone had just frozen. And, and she looked up, why has everyone stopped? And in both cases, it was because there was this gorgeous sunset. The conversations had stopped. The business had stopped. The busyness had stopped. The phones had gone down. Every, everyone was just pausing to mark this moment. There was something about being human when you see a sunset that just makes you... You should stop in your tracks. I should stop in my tracks and look at this thing. Right. Which suggests two things. 
God's doing something with the sunset and that we as humans were made to notice it. Mm-hmm. And the question that I'm left with in, uh, in an example like that is why is anything symbolic? Mm-hmm. Why, is, why do we have a word called symbolism? Why, do, why is anything in, in this created order, why do we have a category for it? When we're writing things, when we're writing stories, and we say, oh, well, this thing's symbolic of this other, why? Right. Why is symbolism yeah. even a thing? I think that's such a good question. And I, I, I think that it's, it behooves us to do a little bit of some philosophical groundwork, just a, a tiny bit. I'm not going to go too deep into this. But with a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, there crept in an idea in Western culture that changed everything. And what Kant said is that if you look at an object, like, and let's, we'll continue to use the Eucharist as an example. It's the most weighty ritual we have as Christians, the most meaningful, meaning laden and meaning making ritual that we have as Christians. And what Kant would say, and what many Christians now would say, is that the meaning of the Eucharist is in each individual believer's head and heart. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I receive the Eucharist, it's my job when I see the bread and the wine are pretty much nothing but the bell or the whistle in Pavlov's dogs. Right. (laughs) You blow a whistle and then the dogs respond. So the bread and the wine are the whistle or the bell. And we're the salivating dogs. So when we receive in our mouths the bread and the wine, it's up to us to remember Christ's sacrifice Mm. and resurrection. So the thing that's happening in the Eucharist is happening in the believer, right? So, so you just made the Eucharist into a work. Exactly. So, and, and many Christians believe that today. Right. And I think it's wrong because before Kant, the understand, which would have been the reformers to your point, there was no epistemological shift to the individual perceiver mm-hmm. at that point. So to even the reformers, in the pro- and, and we're saying this because so many Protestants are the ones now who would say the meaning making mm, right. is happening within the mind of each individual believers, right? That's a very modern way of thinking. Before that, the idea would have been the meaning is in the bread and the wine. In the book Desiring the Kingdom, author Jamie Smith says that with the Eucharist, it isn't that it means something, it's that it does something. That when we receive the bread and the wine, in our mouths, something is happening to us. It is a vehicle of grace. That's what the reformers understood. That's what the liturgical traditions continue to understand today. And so whether or not that becomes the actual body and blood of Christ or whether it remains bread and wine, uh, I don't want to say that doesn't matter because it does. But that's liturgical theology that's maybe beyond the scope of this conversation. Yeah, we've gotten into into Eucharistic theology a lot in a conversation that's supposed to be about like leaves. But I don't want, exactly, (laughs) but I don't want to get beyond uh, so far into the weeds of that. Sure. As much as, as to say to your point, if we're right, then then the bread and the wine themselves have meaning, not just in my head and in my heart. Mm -hmm. It does. And if that's true, that has implications for how we live the Christian life that blows modernity out of the water. It does. Well, because the answer to the question, what, why do we even have a thing called 
symbolism. And you could you could extrapolate this to a lot of other questions about you know why is why does math exist and stuff like that? Why are there truths in the universe? But specifically, why does symbolism exist? Because the center of reality mm-hmm. is a person, right? And if the center of the cosmos is Jesus Christ, then you would expect to find him everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you would expect to find the ability to learn about him everywhere. And you would expect little vehicles of you know, lowercase g grace mm-hmm. to be found everywhere. And right. so learning to encounter his creation... Um, I like the word, uh, and I, I'm stealing this from others, but I like the word creation as opposed to like nature or the environment because both of those have this sense of separateness from us. Hmm. Um, and, but when we encounter the rest of his creation, which includes us, learning to see each material thing as this was made as a vehicle of grace. This was made to help me know God. This was made to reflect something about God. And that doesn't mean you're going to magically decode every little layer of meaning and everything, but it, it does teach you, you know, we've, we've all read books like this or had friends like this who just seem to see more. And the first book that God gave us to help us know him more, see more, and understand our nature as material beings who were made to be spiritual as well, um, is nature. And it's, it's commonly in, um, it's kind of a quiet idea through the church fathers and kind of continues on from there. It gets kind of noisier because as people assumed. get more explicit because it's assumed, yeah? yes. like, like this idea of two books, like you have right. the book of creation and then the book of scripture. Um, I, uh, there's a, an, an Orthodox um, fellow named uh, Seraphim Hamilton, and I, I think phrased it. I don't know if this was original to him, but I like the way he phrased it even better. It's not that there are two books, like the Book of Creation and the Book of Scripture, because now you have to like make the case from Scripture that this other book exists. No, no, no. It's one book. Words and pictures. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's good. Right? That's good. He'd probably add the icons onto that, but again, that's beyond the scope of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, and, and, and th- but this, this you don't have to work hard to argue right. from Scripture. Right. If the material world is the pictures that tell you the nature of God, the nature of reality, the story that you're in, then it would make total sense that when God is creating and giving to us the written Scriptures, they would be filled with explanations of the pictures right. and references to the pictures, which yes. they are. Right. Over and over and over and over, there are so, so many nature examples used repeatedly. Well, and isn't that so encouraging? Like, to me, that's just such a happy shift in the heart because it, it bleeds into practice so easily. This idea that, that we don't have to turn everything into ideas to think mm. about and take a position on and understand and parse but we can go for a walk and see, you know, the world's charged with the grandeur of God, the Hopkins quote that we began the top of, at the top of the podcast, that I could go look at that cottonwood tree and it would be a prayer. Hmm. Like that is, I can make a, a wonderful dinner 
and gather my friends around it and have, you know, a wonderful wine with it. And that that would be a sacramental experience charged with the grandeur of God. That's a prefiguring of the feast I'm going to enjoy in the kingdom with those same people without sin, with nothing between us, right? To be able to build that in a small way here is such a gift. Like to us, I think for both you and I and everybody on behalf of everybody at the Anselm Society, this is not uh, merely a propositional kind of theological shift that we're advocating this is a, a whole life opening to grace that we are trying to invite and create. And it's one that we're not making up. Yeah. Um, that's one that's just... It's a return. It's got a long, a long and fairly, up, up until recently, fairly universal pedigree in, mm-hmm. in Christian history of, of right. looking at the world this way. Is the cottonwood tree heaven? No. Does heaven exist? Yeah. Yes. It's just a window into it. Does right? it? Yep. <laughs> does does our relationship with the cottonwood tree and the way that we conduct it do something to bring us closer to heaven, to help us understand heaven better? Yes. And that's why it was made. I mean, clouds. Think about clouds alone. Mm-hmm. Like in, throughout the Old Testament, when God appears in all of his glory, always hidden in a cloud. Cloud, 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 over and over and over. Once, like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Cloud with fire, cloud with fire, cloud with fire. So when you see a cloud. So our weather patterns are literally windows into God's interaction with humans. No, it's just, it's just water, Heidi. Yep. (laughs) That's right. It's just water. Anytime moderns use the word just, I'm a little bit suspicious. I know. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a great instinct to build up? Like every time someone says the word just, immediately spring to the opposite conclusion. Right. Ooh, if it's not just, then what is it? Then what is it? Um, is but, there any but, just? But that yeah. is a, but that is a crucial um, point to, to make, I think, as we, as we wrap up, is that on the one hand, you can learn to look at material beauty with uh, a sort of a vague eye of mm-hmm. appreciation, right? I don't understand everything about this. But it's magical somehow, right? That alone, you've gone a long way. That's, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. But, and, um, you, you, like, that's an option. Going all the way to, I absolutely understand every little detail of how this tree connects me to God. Okay. That's not happening this side of mm-hmm. heaven, right? And would we want it to? Yeah. No. <laughs> but, but somewhere in between the two, right. understanding that the appreciation that we have for that, that the meaning, the truth, the reality of that isn't just vague. And, you know, this is the, it almost harkens back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and that whole story in um, Genesis. God, God intends for us to know him. Mm-hmm. He intends for us to be like him in the right sense of the word. And he gives us knowledge within time and space in his own time and his own way. Right. And you, again, between idolatry and indifference, you can have a category between it's magical, vaguely, and I can't know anything, and I must know everything. Right. Well, it's a mystery, and that that's not a cop-out. No. Because as a literary person, all mysteries are comedies. Right? A mystery is, mm. it follows a predictable pattern. There's a, a very biblical pattern, right? There's a created world where the story opens, then there's a fall, somebody dies, or 
something's lost or stolen, some kind of complication that brings disorder into the world of the story. And then a detective comes along, a great, the, the hero, the savior, right? The detective comes along and unravels the mystery and then the world is restored again. And so, as I said, a mystery is always a comedy. A mystery always has a happy ending and that's why they're so satisfying. And so, of course, it's not just vague. Mystery doesn't mean that there's no answer, that there's no truth. It just means that we don't yet have eyes to see it or that the savior, the detective hasn't fully unraveled it and given us the mm. restored wor world yet. And so um, to say something in the world is a mystery is not a cop out. It's just a way of saying I am worshiping the savior who is going to bring the answers and the solution and restore all things. Hmm. Well said. That's beautiful. So as we um, go through our our month of May, basically think about it this way. May is about space in the sense of material, the material hmm. order, and June will be about time. Hmm. So we'll get into, we've alluded to a couple time-related things already in these conversations. We'll get into time a lot more deeply and what is it and how, does, how is this a created thing that exists to help us know God better. But in the within our 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 May stretch talking about space, about the material world, we have a couple of opportunities for you to stretch you as the listener to stretch your imagination a little bit with these. In addition to our conversations here and the, the written um, pieces that we are reading on the podcast, we have two stories that I think do this really, really well um, on believe to see as I'm recording this, we already have the story of the secret garden up, which is this magnificent story about a human who, who encounters the apparently dead earth understands her role in it and makes it grow, makes it fulfill its potential, and in the process is transformed by it. And then uh, at the end of May, we will uh, be delighted to have uh, Leslie Bustard with us for our pub night, our Tolkien pub night, telling us a story that Tolkien wrote called Smith of Wutan Major, which almost nobody's read. It's not from Middle Earth, it's from an alternative fairy world, and it's all about a character who is given the gift of seeing more of the relationship between the material world and the spiritual one and what he chooses to do with that gift. So I encourage you to head over to uh, Believe to See to experience those stories and conversations about them, as well as the continuing conversation here at Imagination Redeemed. Heidi, any last thoughts? I have no last thoughts. Very good. It's a great conversation. Or infinite last thoughts, either way. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> where, could, where, where must we stop? All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we will look forward to continuing the conversation with you next time. Mm -hmm.